Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of April 29th, the Spring Thaw. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the continued improvement in risk sentiment in credit markets over the past few weeks. In addition, we discuss what the precipitous drop in LIBOR means for swap spreads in the weeks ahead. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at BMO.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. As temperatures continue to climb here in North America with the arrival of spring, credit conditions continue to thaw on the back of Fed liquidity facilities and an improvement in risk tone in general. Indeed, it feels like risk sentiment has turned pretty significantly bullish here in the last few weeks. Although that's not entirely true, is it, Dan? Yeah, I agree with you that risk tone certainly feels better over the past few weeks. But when you take a step back and look at the numbers, you know, credit spreads are actually pretty range bound over the past two weeks. Now, that's the first time we can say that since about mid to late February. And there's two caveats I, I want to highlight when you look at these numbers. The first, in the context of the data, risk asset performance has actually been pretty good. If you look at, for instance, the City Economic Surprise Index reveals that economic data over the past few weeks has been as bad as it's been since the financial crisis. So despite all that, risk assets are really hanging on. And then secondly, and probably more importantly, if you look at the composition of risk asset performance, that paints a somewhat more bullish picture and it puts risk sentiment in a more positive light. So the equal weighted S&P 500 is now outperforming the market cap weighted S&P 500 for the past few days to the tune of three or 4%. Now, the reason we highlight this is, you know, in the beginning of this rally in risk assets, big companies used to lead. You had Microsoft and Amazon really accounting for most of the gains in the S&P 500. And now it's being spread around the index more broadly, meaning that smaller companies that are probably more exposed to the lockdown have been outperforming just these mega cap companies over the past few weeks. And I think that's really encouraging in terms of risk sentiment. Yeah. And it follows logically where if we see the economy turning down here in response to lockdowns, the first thing we do is move to bonds because we worry about a liquidity crisis and potentially companies being forced into bankruptcy just as a result of short-term cash flow problems. Then we see the Fed come in with an avalanche of liquidity. That sort of fear that cash flow problems might force even otherwise healthy companies into insolvency is sort of removed so investors can maybe feel comfortable moving into large companies we know have the balance sheet to withstand a deep but temporary loss in earnings as a result of quarantines. Now that we see investment dollars moving even further down the curve into smaller companies that might be more at risk, it really starts to show that investors are becoming more optimistic about an economic reopening as well as individuals' willingness to re-engage the economy, because ultimately that's what matters. It's not necessarily that governments reopen the economy. It's the individual decision of people to re-engage the economy, and investors are clearly feeling more comfortable with that notion based on the price action of the past few weeks. Now, granted, QE certainly has something to do with this. QE 
pushes all investors sort of further out the credit spectrum. So that is part of the reason why we're seeing this, but I don't think it's the only reason. I think there genuinely has been an increase in optimism about economic reopening, despite the fact that we're seeing some stay-at-home orders leak into mid-May, end of May, potentially even to June. We thought that might cause some credit spread weakness, but it appears that what's more important now is not when states reopen, but that once states do reopen, that they're able to stay open and we don't have a second wave of virus infection. Yeah, I agree. I think that's going to be the most important thing is not just that states in the economy reopen in short order, but that once they do, they stay open and that there's not more of these temporary periods of social distancing and further lockdowns. And the conversation has certainly shifted now that we are passing the peak of infections in certain places in the country to when and how is the economy going to reopen. So in Illinois, we have a May 30th expected start date. They vary across the country. In some states, the conversation about reopening is in the very near term. But I think another important thing is these headlines that we're seeing, especially today and a couple of weeks ago out of remdesivir, this treatment drug from Gilead, have been really encouraging in terms of the prospects that we might avoid a second wave of social distancing. So last week, we said that we were overweighting some of the higher quality sectors that we cover and underweighting the lower credit quality stuff, the triple B corporates. And we now turn more neutral on lower credit quality investment grade corporate debt. Yeah, I agree with you. The Remdesivir headlines, particularly the ones those that hit this morning, are extremely encouraging because it's evidence that really for the first time since the disease got here, we see some hope of an effective treatment that will increase the confidence of otherwise healthy people going out despite the risk of a second wave, feeling more comfortable that even if they do catch the coronavirus, there is a treatment that can help avoid the worst circumstances. So it's been something we've been following for a long time. And just to go over quickly what this morning's headlines meant for the market, as far as we know, there are six trials outstanding for remdesivir, two of which took place in China and have already been reported as failures. Now, the official reason for the Chinese trials being considered failures was a lack of patience, a lack of enrollment, because China had such a drastic drop in the number of cases after extreme quarantine measures were put in place. But last week, parts of the study that were conducted before being shut down to the lack of participants was leaked. And even that data appeared not very encouraging. So things were a little more bearish on the remdesivir front. But then this morning, we get headlines that one of the trials being conducted by the NAIAD has reached a primary endpoint, which apparently has positive results in it. We don't get to see any data that's forthcoming in a briefing, but it seems like the data is going to be positive. In addition, in a separate release, Gilead announced that trial participants who were given the drug for 10 days had similar outcomes to those that were given the drug for five days. Well, this is not news on the efficacy of remdesivir. It does say that if remdesivir is ultimately proven an effective treatment, or at least a partially effective treatment against COVID-19, there's going to be a wider range of patients who are able to be treated with a given quantity of drug if you only need to be given a five-day trial and not a 10-day trial. So I agree with you, Dan. Not only have things felt better in recent weeks, but the price action of this week is confirming that. And then we have these remdesivir headlines that really start to show that perhaps the economic reopening will be more successful than we previously thought. In further evidence of the thawing of credit conditions, LIBOR has dropped an astounding 30 basis points in the past four trading sessions. So a question that we had been receiving very frequently, which is why isn't LIBOR dropping, has now transitioned to how is LIBOR dropping so fast? Yeah, Dan, it's been truly a remarkable decline in LIBOR. 
And the main factor that I would point to as responsible for this is the relatively new waterfall methodology. And I think a lot of this drop can become self-reinforcing under this methodology. So as spot LIBOR falls faster than futures expected, you have futures dropping. And then because some LIBOR submissions are based on Eurodollar futures, that drop can lead to a sort of self-reinforcing cycle that causes spot LIBOR to fall further. Because remember, with the waterfall methodology, if there aren't eligible CD and CP transactions or eligible unsecured deposits, then submitters move to looking to any of a range of other market rates, potentially including cross-currency bases, euro dollars, and other secured and unsecured market transactions. And now we say if there haven't been eligible level one transactions, meaning CD and CP, but it seems like that's a pretty safe assumption to make. When we look at the Fed's series for AA financial commercial paper, This series hasn't printed a rate in over a month because of lack of eligible transactions. There simply isn't unsecured funding needs, and that's why you've had such erratic behavior in LIBOR. And so that is, I think, what's going on in terms of the cadence of LIBOR's decline. But it's something that we have assumed would happen, and futures had indicated that it would happen. But at this point, it seems like we're probably getting close to the point where we're running out of steam, right? Yeah, that's right. So now taking into account the May Euro dollars contract, expecting another 30-ish basis points and narrowing, that brings Friar OIS just down to the low 30s. And LIBOR OIS, even in normal times, trades usually in a 20 to 25 basis point band. So if Euro dollar futures for May are hit, and at this point we have no real reason to expect they won't be, That implies LIBOR OIS just a few basis points off of what you'd consider normal. And well, like we just talked about, credit conditions have improved significantly here over the course of the past month. We stopped short of saying that the current environment is normal. So we expect the narrowing in euro dollar futures to sort of start running out of steam here, which ultimately means that further narrowing pressure on swap spreads is rather limited. So we've been underweight swap spreads here for the past couple of weeks, and now we turn our eye towards maybe looking to take some profits here, given the limited ability for euro dollar futures to keep falling from current levels. Now, Dan, before signing off, I think it's helpful to at least touch on a few market technical forces, particularly in supply and demand here as credit conditions start to calm down and technicals start to become perhaps more important. On that note, how has corporate issuance evolved during this volatile time? Yeah, there's been a truly unprecedented wave of issuance in the corporate market over the past month and a half. I think a lot of issuers are looking around at funding costs, seeing that rates are at the zero bound and long-term rates are well-contained. And credit spreads, while they're elevated, they're fairly stable at this point. So you have companies taking advantage of the ability to fund and lock up some cash for a long period of time while they weather this storm of economic lockdown. So issuance in the corporate market is about 60 to 70% ahead of where it usually is through this point in the year. There's been $732 billion in investment-grade corporates. Just to put some context around that, last year, there was just $1.12 trillion in the whole year. So we're almost pre-funded for the majority of, of a normal year, and it's just April. And the same can certainly be said for U.S. agency issuance, which has increased significantly here in the past couple weeks as a result of CARES Act forbearance plans that allow anyone impacted by the coronavirus pandemic to forego mortgage payments for at least the next six months and as long as one year. 
despite forbearance, investors will continue to receive PNI, which will be basically sent to them by the agencies. So the agencies are rapidly increasing their debt issuance in order to fund mortgage PNI payments as a result of forbearance. We estimate that across all four major GSCs, we could see agency issuance increase up to 400 billion, of which we saw 250 billion come in March alone, though we know a lot of that came in the form of discount notes that will need to be termed out. So we can expect to see very heavy agency issuance here going forward. To that point, April brought a benchmark transaction from each of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and Home Loan Bank in the same month. And it's been years since that happened, just further proving that a market that's been sort of left for dead in terms of issuance is coming back to life here. We're going to see a lot more agency supply. On the SSA front, we went through and looked at almost 40 SSA borrowers and their inclusion in government efforts to counteract the coronavirus. And we found that just so far, global SSAs have committed as much as $750 billion to the fight against the coronavirus, which you'd expect to have a significant impact on SSA borrowing programs. We wrote about this in our last written piece, and it's something that sort of probably translates more easily on the page than it does in the podcast. So I'll just sum up our analysis by saying that we found that the size of the U.S. dollar SSA market, not including U.S. agencies, is likely to grow between 125 and $150 billion over the course of the next three years. But the caveat there is over the course of the next three years, SSAs typically will increase their borrowing by redirecting planned capital expenditures for this year or by using liquidity buffers so that in the initial year, the impact on borrowing programs is actually quite minimal. And we've seen this both in the financial crisis of 08 and the European debt crisis. We see them use other sources of liquidity and then increase borrowing programs in years to come. So this distinction means that the increase in SSA borrowing programs, while there might be some this year, it's not likely to be a lot. Instead, we're going to see higher issuance next year and the year after, whereas agencies and corporates like Dan talked about, we're seeing a much more immediate need for cash. So from a purely technical standpoint, the SSA market looks rather attractive here, though we acknowledge that technicals, at least to this point, probably haven't been when anyone's paying too much attention to. But as things continue to calm down, technicals are going to grow and grow in importance and SSAs look attractive from that standpoint. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Just a quick note on our publication schedule. We plan to publish a weekly podcast every week that the Fixed Strategy Group does not publish a monthly roundtable. And I believe that next week we are scheduled to publish a monthly roundtable. So our next podcast is coming likely two weeks from now. And if anyone has listened far enough to hear this, congratulations to you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting 
eliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. Vimo is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause Vimo or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. Vimo is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and Emo accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. Emo assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 